Well, today I'm beginning a new mini-series on the subject of hope. And we will be moving through the first chapter of the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. In light of Donald Trump's stunning election victory, multitudes of college students across the nation are experiencing what the Wall Street Journal calls a widespread sense of shock and despair. My initial reaction upon hearing this was that this response comes from nothing more than this generation's inability to process loss. Because our society has taught them in a sense that they are always winners. Handing them trophies even when they come in 10th place. But upon further investigation, I really believe that there's something much more serious and heartbreaking that's going on. In the same article from Friday's paper there in the Wall Street Journal, Troy Boynton, who is the director of multi-ethnic student affairs at the University of Michigan, is quoted as saying, a lot of people are feeling like there has been a loss. We talked about grief today and about the loss of hope that this election would solidify the progress that was being made, end quote. Did you catch that? Why would students, and many people, not just students, many generations, act this way over an election? Because for them, it equates to a, a loss of hope. So I've come today with a message, some really great news for every generation, every political party, to remind you that our hope is not in a political party. It is not in a political leader. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Now don't misunderstand me. I, I believe that the Lord uses political leaders for His purposes. And I'm grateful for ours. And I'm praying for President-elect Trump. And I'm praying for President Obama as he makes his way out. We're grateful for our governing authorities. But if we fail to see that our hope is in Jesus Christ, if we put our trust in any governing authority or any worldly thing, every one of us will eventually become hopeless. Because everything that the world offers will ultimately fail us. Because it's tainted by sin. But in Christ, how many know that we have an unshakable hope? We have a constant hope that is not moved by elections, nor is it crushed by economic downfall. Our hope is secure in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Listen, even in an age of terrorism, in great tribulation, in the midst of violence and extreme hatred, as Christians, we can lay our heads down on our pillows at night and experience peace that surpasses all understanding because of the confident hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great feeling? It's what we just sing about. And He knows my name. I don't know what tomorrow may bring. But the end of that verse says, I know in whom I have believed. 
That's all that matters. So in the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to the believers in Colossae to combat some false teachings that have been circulating in the church. And he's reminding them both of the supremacy of Christ and the preeminence of Christ. And he's reminding them that hope is found in Jesus alone. And the word hope is mentioned three times in chapter 1 alone. So today, I want to talk about the hope that is found specifically in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then next week, I'm going to talk about how we are to respond as believers to this hope. So if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 1. Stand to your feet, if you would, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, and we will begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the midst of what many see as uncertain times and perilous times. We come to you with a sense of rejoicing because, Father, we have an unshakable hope in you. And if there are any here today that came in with a despondency or a despair, a sense of despair, Father, I pray that they would be reminded that their hope is in you. Encourage us today. We just, as we study this doctrine of truth, foundational doctrine, to the church. I just pray you'll use me today to communicate nothing but the truth. And give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you have a note sheet. Did you guys get those when you came in? Everybody? Amen. Well, I have two main points from this text, namely the presence of hope and the pillar of hope. And I want to deal with each of these respectively. So we'll begin by talking about the presence of hope that was there in the church at Colossae and that's here for Real Life Community Church today. You know, it's very easy in the negative world in which we live to develop a very critical attitude towards others, even other believers. We are often quick to, to point out faults 
or needed corrections in the lives of other Christians, aren't we? But Paul models something here that we would do well to emulate. And he does this frequently. He makes a practice of seeing and proclaiming the good things that God is doing in the lives of fellow Christians. He deals with issues. If you know, if you've read his epistles, you know that Paul does not shy away from the issues that need to be addressed. And he deals with them even rather abruptly at times. But he is quick always to recognize God's grace at work in the lives of others. And the church at Colossae was far from a perfect church. There was a, a false teaching that was infiltrating the church and some of the believers were being deceived. And this is frustrating for a pastor or for an apostle. Yet in the midst of all of these issues, Paul is quick to point out the presence of three Christian virtues, namely faith, love, and hope. These are present in the lives of these believers. And I want to just deal with each of these for a moment. So Paul begins by expressing gratitude to God for the Colossians' faith. And in context, it's clear that he is celebrating the believer's initial trust in the Lord. But there's another aspect to this faith as well. It's the present everyday faith that is that continues to sustain the believers there. That is a faith that is continually anchored in Jesus Christ. Now Paul had never actually been to the church at Colossae when writing this letter. He was receiving the news about the church from this man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras was a fellow citizen. He lived there in Colossae. And he apparently traveled to Ephesus, which was about 120 miles from his city. And he got to hear the Apostle Paul proclaim the gospel. And it changed his life. And so Epaphras returns to his hometown and he begins to share the good news with everyone else. And this is how the church there in the city of Colossae is started. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And now at the time of writing, Epaphras has somehow reconnected with Paul in Rome, giving him an update on what's going on at the church. And he's giving him the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now you can imagine as Paul is listening to him, I mean, here's one man who heard the gospel in Ephesus. And Paul rejoiced, no doubt, over that convert. But then all of a sudden, Paul now hears, as he hears, as he is in Rome, he hears that the gospel is spreading all across Asia Minor. And that in this city of Colossae, that many people are being saved. I mean, this must have delighted Paul's heart. And I want to point out here uh, to, that, that don't ever think that God can't use you because you're just one person. Don't ever say, well, what good can I do? If you will submit to the Lord, if you have the baptism in the Holy Spirit and you are empowered for Christ's exalting ministry, there is no limit to what God can do for you. Through you. Amen? I mean, cities can be turned upside down. And I want somebody to get a hold of this this morning because I haven't given up on Richmond, Kentucky. 
I'm just believing that this little church who has a heart so much for our community, if we will submit to God and we'll say, God, you do with me what you will. I want to be a vessel that you can use. I believe, church, we can turn this city upside down. I'm tired of the devil having his way in Richmond, Kentucky and the surrounding areas. I believe greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And I believe change is coming. So Paul addresses this virtue of faith. And then he goes on, moving from the virtue of faith to thanking God for the Colossians' love, which is being expressed, he says, towards all the believers. Now the focus here is that their act of faith is evident by the present outworking of love. One commentator writes this, quote, A faith that resides in Christ and a love for others are twins that should walk together in life, end quote. And we've talked about this many, many times, that, that you cannot say you love God or that you're a person of faith in the Lord and not love people, especially other believers. We are to be people of love, and our faith is demonstrated in the way in which we love one another. 1 John 3.14 says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So a genuinely, uh, generally unloving person shows that their heart has not fully been transformed by the gospel. Let me make one note here. The love that the Colossians have is for, the Bible says, all the saints. That's good news to me. This, this is one of the traits that I love about real life community church. We don't care about the color of your skin. We don't care about your social status, the size of your bank account. We don't care where you've been or what you've done. We'll love you just like we love anybody else. Because here's what we believe. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're not too good for anybody. And I love you, church, for, for expressing that to our community so often. So Paul addresses faith and love, and then he expresses thanksgiving to God for the Colossians' hope. Rather than just listing these three virtues together, like he does in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, this is interesting. Hope is set forth here as the motivating factor or the kindling, if you like, for the other two virtues. Look at this again. Look at verse 3. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints because, you might underline that word, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So in this text, faith and love are based upon hope. Isn't that interesting? The Crossway ESV commentary points out that this hope is not presented here as the action of hoping, but it is an objective hope that Christians can anticipate with confidence. So the hope laid up for Christians here would include the whole of our salvation. Are you thankful for that hope? Being with the Lord forever, eternal rewards, all the promises of God. And nothing in this world can compare to the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
Because this is laid up for Christians in heaven, that is great news. Here's what it means. No earthly power, no power of hell can come against it. It is secure. No one can rob believers of the reality of this hope. I love what, how Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus. Hallelujah. Let me just read that part again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable. Did you get that? Undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Hallelujah. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Believers have a confident, objective hope. We need to be mindful of this hope of salvation and eternal rewards and all the many benefits that go with us. How can we be despondent when we have a hope like this? This explains why Paul was able to write from a Roman prison cell and say rejoice in the Lord at all times. And again, I say rejoice because we have a hope. So Paul begins by thanking God for these virtues, faith, love, and hope that are present in the believers at Colossae. And then he goes on to remind them of the pillar of this hope, the gospel. The pillar of hope, the gospel. So our hope, the Bible makes very crystal clear, is in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. It is in the gospel. Look at verse 5. Of this, talking about hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, Paul is writing this letter mainly because false teaching has been circulating in, in the midst of believers in Colossae. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that these false teachings were causing some of the believers to feel maybe a sense of hopelessness again? Maybe they were drifting from the gospel. And we don't know the exact nature of these false teachings, but what we do know is that Paul makes a strong case for the preeminence of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. And Paul is reminding believers here that their hope is anchored in the gospel. He is reminding them that Jesus is enough. There were people, you can go to chapter 2 and get an idea of some of the teachings that were going around. But they were, so some of the false teachers were making the, the Colossians believe that Jesus was not enough. That they had to do other things besides believe in Jesus. How do they know that Jesus is more than enough? So 
very quickly, in case we have some new believers here, or maybe somebody who's seeking and, and, and you're not a believer yet, let me address this. What is the gospel exactly? Well, Paul tells us, if you go with me to book of, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now look at verse 3. So he's saying, here's the gospel. For I delivered it to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is simply the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That changes everything. Amen. See, without the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would be a hopeless people. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, again, let's go down to verse 17. Here's what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, watch what Paul says. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, I love this, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? So you see, the gospel, this message of Christ's death and burial and resurrection is the pillar of our hope. Our hope is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul gives us quickly four characteristics of this gospel. The first of which is that the gospel is a gospel of truth. The gospel is truth. Look at the second part of verse 5 there. He says, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, the word of truth. See, hope means nothing if it is not based on something objective, if it is not based on truth. Let me give you an example. There are people who are miserable today because they don't have a lot of money, and yet they're spending their last $5 on lottery tickets because they hear the line, somebody's, come on, somebody's got to win, it might as well be you. And they think, oh. And so they bank their life. And so it's, in, in, instead of, of making money in another way, um, they go, hey, I'm just going to lottery, lottery, lottery. And, and then they're disappointed. And even in the, in, in the rare case that someone like that wins, they're still disappointed when they find out that money, even in large amounts, doesn't rescue broken people. It's a false hope. There is a, about a 1 in 292 million chance of winning the Powerball. And some people are putting their hope in that. It's not truth. It's never going to fix you. It's never going to rescue you. It can never move you from death to life. Even in the rare chance that you win. But Jesus Christ is a sure hope. In Him we have a solidified hope, an objective hope. In the gospel, we have hope that is truth. And so our hope church is unshakable because it's anchored in truth. The gospel is truth. 
Secondly, I love this. The gospel is universal. Uh, again, verse 5. Of this you've heard before. In the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and it's increasing. See, part of the good news of the gospel is, is again, that the ground at, at, at the foot of the cross is level ground. Hallelujah. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the gospel message is for you. No matter your race, no matter your nationality, no matter your pedigree, no matter your social status, the gospel message is for you. Amen. This is a beautiful message because very few things in this world, if we're honest, are open equally to all men and women. What you get or what you're able to accomplish, unfortunately, oftentimes depends on where you've been born, who your family is, your social status, your skin color, so on and so forth. But the gospel is wide open. One of my heart's desires as a pastor, and if you've been here long, you know this about me, is to have a multicultural church. I just want you to know, we welcome everyone, everyone, no matter your race, no matter your social status. I mean, there, there are people, I've heard this over and over and over growing up in church, that, that don't come to church because they don't have something nice to wear. Are you kidding me? Just wear something. I'll be thrilled. Okay, just wear something. But come in. Come in. We don't care what you wear. Okay, we, we care about what God's doing in your life. People don't come in church because they, well, you don't, you know, they, they know around here who my family is and all the issues. Listen, you're welcome in real life community church because you're welcome at the foot of the cross as well. You're welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And we are a church who loves people without question. The gospel is universal. It is open to all men and women without exception. And I love that the Bible says here it's active and it's bearing fruit across the world. Isn't it amazing? You know, Epaphras some 2,000 years ago heard Paul, the apostle, proclaiming the same message that I'm preaching today. And, and day after day, many multitudes of lives have been changed by this same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's a living word. It's a living gospel. It's living truth. It's not dead. It's as relevant today as it was yesterday, and it will forever be relevant. Amen? I love it. The, the, the gospel is active and it's bearing fruit and it's open to all men and women. And then the gospel is a message of grace. In this final verse, he says, the hope that's come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit. The gospel's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God. And that's exactly what the gospel is. One commentator said, grace is nothing less than a synonym for the gospel. Think about that. What we celebrated today, what we remembered, what we thank the Lord for through communion, Jesus and His work on the cross, you understand that came apart from any human merit. None of us deserved it. I'll say it again. None of us deserved it. 
We didn't deserve His sacrifice, but He freely gave. Here's what I love about the gospel. It is not a message of condemnation. Have you ever heard some of these, these preachers who turn the gospel into a message of condemnation? They hold up their picket signs and listen, I believe in preaching about sin. I, I believe, but listen, the great news, yeah, we're all sinners, but here's the great news of the gospel. I don't have to stand up here and yell, repent, repent. You sinners, I can say to you, we're all sinners, but where sin abounds, grace all the more. I'm thankful that the gospel is good news. You don't hear the, the true, undefiled, pure gospel and leave feeling like garbage. Unless maybe you reject it. It is good news. In church, we need to start proclaiming it as good news to our communities. Because there are hopeless people who are upset over an election. I get being disappointed. But they are, as the, the, the Wall Street Journal says, in despair and hopeless. No, they're not. We've got great news for them. Jesus is alive. And the gospel is open to them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And no matter how crazy they've acted, no matter what they've done through the process of selection, grace is there for them. Oh, how I want to get that message to them. I hope there's somebody in those cities that will love them enough, swallow their pride enough, and overlook what they're doing to just say, you know what? This person needs Jesus Christ in their life. Grace is for everyone. I love the gospel. I'm thankful today that our hope is not placed in something that is unsure or unstable. I don't have to get up and check my phone in the morning and look at the stock market to see where my hope lies for the day. It's anchored in this gospel. A man by the name of Halford E. Lucock in his book Unfinished Business writes, One night at dinner... A man who had spent many summers in Maine fascinated his companions by telling of his experience in a little town named Flagstaff. And the town was to be flooded as part of a large lake for which a dam was being built. And in the months before it was to be flooded, all improvements and repairs in the whole town were stopped. What was the use of painting a house if it were to be covered with water in six months? Why repair anything when the whole village was to be wiped out? So week by week, the whole team became more and more despaired. Then he added this by way of explanation. He said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. I get why so many would be in despair after their candidate didn't get elected. Because for them, there's no faith in the future. For many, the future is based on a political leader or policy. But these things will always let you down. There's never been a perfect president. We don't put our hope in any man. Don't, please don't put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in a pastor. A spiritual leader. 
Your hope can only be anchored in Jesus Christ. When your hope is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you just have this constant sense of joy. You, you don't have utter, I'm not saying that you won't have bad days, but you won't ever be in utter despair, no matter what earthly circumstances you encounter. And so as, for some of you, you, you may feel like the people of Flagstaff this morning. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ and your end is unsure. And that's frightful. And so you're experiencing great despondency in the present. Maybe you've never taken home hold of this gospel. Today is your day. Most of you in here are Christians. Maybe some of you, like the Colossians, maybe you've been distracted. Life is busy and we're, we're hit with so much information and so much media, so much negativity. Maybe you have felt again a sense of hopelessness. Maybe you've looked to a political leader for hope. And you need to be reminded that even if your candidate did get elected, that your hope is not ultimately in him. Maybe today is just a time for you to refocus again on the person and the work of Jesus.